Welcome to the Cult of Domesticity podcast, a podcast about history, true crime, and whatever life brings us. I'm Courtney, and every week I am joined by another fascinating person. Let's see what we're going to talk about this week. As close as you can hope for. Welcome back, Devotees Collective. This week, we're here with Natasha from Brodette Nation, the most, the most badass podcast you're ever going to find. <laughs> At least I think so. I think so. You guys recorded what you recorded in Afghanistan. We did. Yeah. Emma and Kepi's back there. So I can try to see if I can get her back on the show while she's in Afghanistan kicking some serious butt. I just love you're like, if we might have to leave at some point to do our jobs. And I was like, what is happening? <laughs> like we're going to have to leave in case there's some incoming. Okay, cool. Cool. We'll just come back. You guys won't notice, but we'll, many things will have happened in between yeah the most yeah. that happens to me is pe- people are doing things so that one of the two police stations near my apartment will go off and drive past <laughs> or someone's picking up a pizza next door and they like to blast music so i play what's that song they're playing in my head or the trains yeah this is not a great apartment for a recording podcast that's all it's telling me yeah listen i have three boys and i was just happy that they're asleep but the baby might wake up. You might hear screaming in the background. Babies do that a lot. And I'm just impressed you have three boys. My mom barely made it through with one. My brother did a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, they're still young. So give me time. I might not make it. <laughs> <laughs> we did almost lose my brother at Disney World once. Or land, whichever one's in Florida. Um, but it was fine. My I was like th- three. My sister was five. Which means my brother was like eight. He just wandered off. We found him. We found him. He's still here. I've mentioned him. Most people, it's more likely my sister will be on, but my brother, the joke is he's the ghost of, for my friends. They're like, you never talk about him. I'm like, well, we almost lost him. Um, <laughs> he's done a lot of things. Like he's that person. You're going to figure, I figured out every child, every family has the one child that's that person. And this is how my brother is that person. Um, he went to a party at Taylor Swift's house. He's partied with Ryan Lochte. Um, he's like almost blown up our house. You know, he's just that person. Wow. I mean, um, I normally just party with my kids and my brothers are not doing any of that cool stuff. Although one brother is in Germany right now. He's in the army. And then my other brother's in Afghanistan. So yeah, that's where we're at. We're all in the, well, of course I'm in the air force. The boys are in the army. And um, yeah, that's all they're doing right now. They're not partying with T-Swift. That, I'm actually pretty disappointed in them. So. <laughs> He's just like, but you know, you have, everybody has that one sibling that if you said something, you're all just like, eh, not shocked. Yeah, that's Daniel. Yeah, see, <laughs> every family has one. My brother told us and we all go, actually, no, not even that shocked. Not even. He was not, he was a plus one, I should mention. He wasn't the like the primary invitee. But that's always how, like he just rolls that way. We're just like, cool, cool. I have a picture of it on my phone or no, I, I used to. I got a different phone. I have a picture of it somewhere with of him with Taylor Swift, but it's weird to think of that. Yeah. But speaking of someone else who loves British things, me, we're going to talk about Guy Fawkes. So do you know anything about Guy Fawkes before we start? I do not. But I'm very, very excited since this is the first time I've ever been on a true crime podcast. 
It is a lifelong dream. <laughs> um, and it was a shit ton of work. I was like, I don't know if I really like this. Um, I'm like, it's like right minute, like last minute before like a paper's due, like in school. I had like an hour and I'm like finally putting my notes together. I was like, oh my gosh, so much pressure. So I'm excited to hear about your guy and I'm excited to tell you about my family. So I have the historical case. So we're back. I mean, there is crime in this. There's, it's a big crime. Most people would know Guy Fox from V for Vendetta or the Bonfire Days in the UK or my favorite poem, Remember, Remember the 5th of November, Gunpowder, Treason and Plot. Okay. I have heard that. Yes. His, uh, I believe it's his face is the anonymous masks now too. So they're all Guy Fox masks, mm. um, which is, I think they got them from V for Vendetta. So he was born in 1570 in Stonegate, York, the UK. He is the second of four kids born to Edward Fox, which I'm saying Fox like F-O-X. It is not spelled that way. In case you're wondering, it's F-A-W-K-E-S. His father is a proctor and advocate of the consistory court at York, which is nice position. He he he's not doing bad. Let's put it that way. I would say not surf level, but working on your way to the gentry. And his wife's name was Edith. They were part of the Church of England. His paternal grandparents, specifically his grandmother, born Ellen Harrington, she was the daughter of a prominent merchant who served as Lord Mayor of York in 1536, which Lord Mayor at that point, prime spot, you're schmoozing with the nobility, you're hosting parties, you're in charge of the town, you have significant power on what's going on. However, do you know a lot about the Protestant Reformation and what's going on? And uh, I have read some historical fiction. I have seen um, a lot of HBO shows. So that's where I'm coming from. Okay. So I'm a little bit familiar with it. So... Basically, at this point, the Church of England has split off from the Catholic Church. We are past Henry. We're like in double check my date. So we're like we're hitting the end of the Tudor era at this point and we're moving into the Stuarts. So this is where England and Scotland, quote unquote, come together because it's not formal for a hot minute historically wise um through james the first so we have henry the eighth saying hey i would like to marry more ladies and who doesn't you know you know but he he wants to divorce his first wife who is the most catholic of catholics catherine of aragon her um nephew so hard with this because there's so many people related in this the tutors is um the head of the holy roman empire so he can control the pope so henry can't divorce her because catherine was originally married to arthur who was henry's brother that's not okay in the bible (laughs) yeah he just got like his brother's wife and he's like i didn't sign off for this why do i gotta marry her right he kind of they, they were very attracted to each other but really his father henry the seventh was like I like that Spanish money (laughs) and the War of the Roses had kind of just ended. So they needed money. So Henry basically breaks off to form the Church of England so he can marry Anne Boleyn. We have it continuing um, on to his son, Edward the first, Edward, no, not the first, Edward the umpteenth. I can't remember which Edward, Edward Tudor. And it's fine. Edward is more fanatical. Then we switch to Mary Tudor, who is like, nah, I'm Catholic because her mother was Catherine Aragorn switches back from Elizabeth to Protestant where people aren't as persecuted as much. And then we reach James I. That is the English Reformation very quickly and very poorly done from my memory. (laughs) But so 
in this landscape of religions going back and forth and prosecutions and all of that, we have guys uh mother's family were catholics but in secret and in certain periods you could like if you just showed up to the church of england service it was fine if you paid an extra tax this is going to get like the catholic thing continues on and on in england until the mid 1800s 1900s with them becoming full citizens and his cousin richard cowling actually was a jesuit priest so um when guy was born we don't actually know when he was born because it wasn't common practice to record the date he would like they didn't think he was going to be important at all or be remembered by history probably um not like elizabeth the first or james the first you know but we do know he was baptized in the church of saint michael le Bethre, uh york on april 16th so you know basing on generalities of traditions he was probably born on the 13th of April, because there's a gap of about three days, they wait to baptize children because childbirth and birth in general at that point is when you, most likely you could die quickly. Yeah, I mean, I'm just gonna let you know after having three kids, it felt like I was dying. So I can absolutely assume um, that it could kill you. Mine is modern medicine, too. Yeah. <laughs> and lack yeah, of clean, clean, clean things. <laughs> I mean, they did boil a lot of things. In 17, sorry, 1579, guys eight, his father dies and his mother, remember, she has four kids. Um, So she waits the designated amount of time, but you need to get married because you have four kids to support. So she remarries to a Catholic man named uh, Dennis Bainbridge or Dinos Bainbridge. This is like late Middle English, more modern English, but spelling, man, spelling. It's I, fun. I can hardly spell now, and that's with word check. Oh, I love standardized spelling so much. <laughs> I've read so many 18th century texts where you're like, "What word is that? Is it this word or this word?" Context. Uh, kind of like Beowulf, where you're like reading it and you're like, "I want to like this, but I don't know what's going on right now." Like, I don't understand these well, words. Beowulf is traditional, really old English and like Anglo-Saxon. Um, and that's, this is like Shakespearean English. So it's technically, if I remember from the Medievalist podcast, it's modern English, but it's like, we're still in that point where it's transitioning to more of what we would recognize clearly. <laughs> so it's still a headache. It's not yeah. fun. Yeah. It's if better you- than Beowulf. That's what, yeah. is that where... Yeah, maybe. Oh, so much better than Beowulf. Okay. <laughs> I read Beowulf for my Patreon Halloween. I regretted doing that choice. Um, and I have so much more appreciation for voice actors. So this might have been where Guy became more Catholic through the Bainbridge's family Catholic tendencies, as well as, you know, the other families of the region, the Polney and the Percy families of Scotland, as well as from his time at the St. Peter's School in York. So the north of England has always been more of a bastion of tradition of Catholicness. They fought Henry VIII on it. There's a lot of background (laughs) that I'm not going to cover, but just know it's kind of a powder keg of secret Catholic and Protestant tradition. So the school he went to, the governor had spent about 20 years in prison for uh, recusancy, basically being Catholic. And its headmaster, John Polney, came from a school of a noted York- Yorkshire Catholics, um, the Polneys of Blubber Houses. So we also know from a book 
published in 1915 on the Polneys of Yorkshire, author Catherine Pullen really pushes that his Catholic education came from his Harrington relatives who were known for like having Catholic priests hiding them um, because you had to hide them for your services and you have just services in someone's house. And there'd be, I believe they're, I can't remember what they're called, but America, we would think of them as on the uh, railroad, the underground railroad for slavery. They had like hidden rooms. They did that for priests in England to keep them so they wouldn't be persecuted and the people who were living there wouldn't be persecuted for being Catholic. So we know that Guy uh, has a priest accompanying him to Flanders in 1592 to 93. Other uh, really famous students in this school were John Wright and his older brother Christopher, who would also be involved in the plot, Oswald Tesmond, Edward Oldcorn, and Robert Middleton, who would become pre- who would become a priest, you know. Don't worry, the Middleton would be executed for that later on. So he leaves school, probably wasn't, you know, he probably got a decent education for the time, but he's not like a nobleman's son. You get much more practical education. He goes to the service of Anthony Brown, first Viscount of Montague. He, um, the, the Viscount immediately did not like Fox and dismissed him. He then moves to Anthony Maria Maria Brown, uh, the second Viscount of Ma- Montague, who would become that at 18. And we, there is one source that claims he got married at this point, had a son, but we have no other accounts to confirm that phrasing and stuff like that. So it's hard. It's a long period of time. A lot of things have disintegrated, disappeared, maybe locked in someone's attic. So- Been there. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm <laughs> actually, I was like, no, nah, my baby's never been locked in an attic. But I was just trying to relate to the story. The much I can relate as in I'm in, I'm Catholic and I grew up in, you know, Southern North Carolina where um, it's Episcopal. Think- Yes, like people think you're pretty much doing witchcraft if you're a Catholic and that you're going to hell. So uh, that's pretty much all that I can relate to. But uh, for the record, I don't lock my babies in attics. So. Yeah, no, they the witchcraft thing and the, the ideology, it's pretty much the same. So Guy decides, you know what, I'm going to become a soldier, which not a bad profession, especially if you're middle, like trying to move up in some regards. Better bets, the Navy, worse food weirder hours but you know yeah that's the navy the na- yeah the navy. nobody really likes the navy <laughs> so, no, i'm just kidding but not really so for the air force well they don't have planes <laughs> <laughs> at that time right? no your <laughs> options are the army or the navy and you know this is the point where britain's navy is growing and the naval industry is booming so you do actually get paid you get paid better you get paid a lot better to be in the navy Chances of dying in a distant land, probably, I would say, about the same. It's just, you know, chances of starving to death higher in the Navy, I would go with. Just for my, you know, if your boat breaks in the middle of the Atlantic, you're going to starve to death, most likely. Ah, truth. So Guy decides to sell the his the small estate in Clifton, which he inherited from his father in 1592, to go fight for the armies of Catholic Spain in the Low Countries, which is like Netherlands and you know southern Scandinavia. Because in case you didn't know, the Spanish owned that because marriage and shit. Yeah, people were like, yeah, he's a good fighter, he's brave, and this army of Flanders that the Spanish put together was an international force, not uncommon at the time. Actually, I think it would be really rare for all ships to be 100% the nationality and like the armies to be 100%. 
because if a war is out and all your whole your whole career is being a soldier being a fighter you're going to go to the next side you're just going to keep going where the pay is so at the time the army is about 62,000 you have about 20,000 Germans, 20,000 Netherlanders, 10,000 Spaniards, um, and about 460 Scots and English. We have the consensus that Guy is a good soldier, brave, dependable, well thought of among his peers, which for a soldier is good because if you're well thought of among your peers, you know, chances of surviving can be higher. He never made um, it above the rank of junior officer like the junior officer rank, which I don't know how hard it is now to get above that rank if you're starting out at the bottom. Well, I mean, it is pretty much until you get to what we call what I'm my rank right now, which is an 04, which is a major. Mm. Um, it's, it's pretty automatic. I mean, you got to do something really bad not to get it. Okay. Yeah, I guess you guys don't have to pay for your commissions now. So that's a lot better. Yeah, I mean, um, wow, I didn't know we had to pay for them back in the day. Oh, yeah. If you wanted to be an officer, you had to pay for it. There's records of him behaving gallantly at the siege of Cadiz in 1596. And we see in 1599, he's described as being in a great in great want, which could mean financially as well as like, it's pro- let's not lie, it's probably financially. He's broke. He probably needs money as all soldier, soldiers do at most points, you know? Mm-hmm. We see in the early 1600s, he travels to Spain on two separate occasions in 1603, seeking support from a reluctant Spanish court for another military venture in aid of English Catholics, which the foreign European Catholics were always the English fear. They're, I just love the one fear they had would be, especially before um scotland the bonnie prince charles like that was all defeated their fear would be like that the french or the spanish would go around and land in ireland and then take over the whole island (laughs) like constant fear of this uh additionally when he's fighting in the netherlands he know he picks up on the serious like unrest among english catholics who are really not happy about the disadvantages they have to be subjected to so they can't be in the house of lords or the house of commons they can't vote they can't have, like, their ability to move in society is limited. Like, they can't move up or down. Like, they can move down, but moving up's a lot harder. Like, they could have up all the money in the world, but they're not going to have the same status as someone who's in the Church of England. So I could see why, like, if you were traditionally a Catholic family and you had all this wealth and status and all of a sudden it changes, you would be pissed. Very. But, I mean, I, I guess the same thing kind of happened to... The Protestants when Mary took over, right? Yeah, yeah. It it was a lot. A lot of people did the flip flop where they were like, "Oh, I was just doing, you know, going with the flow, and hiding their real beliefs, and happy when one went to the other." Elizabeth was much in some regards. She did burn probably similar amounts of people, but or go after similar amount of heretics. But she more, I think, used it as a tax method. Like, yeah, fair pay attack you know you had to keep those coffers up especially because henry the eighth loved to spend money yeah she probably had to rebuild the estate or the wealth <laughs> because you know her daddy had so many wives and he liked to spend that money he liked I me mean, he- based off of my knowledge from the hbo show tutors so i mean the fact he liked to spend money is very evident in that and he did he loved spending money he no one he was that child that no one ever told him no and so he's like I want to build this great, I want to do a 
great campaign. They're like, okay. And he's like, I want to go over to France and show them that we still own Cadiz. Okay. Or Calais. And he's like, yeah. And they would spend so much money on it. Da, da, da. And then they had to tax. And the tax system was you had to go to parliament and get them be like, hey, we're going to raise taxes. And if they said no, the answer was no, because you're basically going to be taxing those men in that room who would have to tax their tenants. So if they didn't want to do it, they ain't going to do it. And they could raise their own armies. So one of these discontented Catholics was Robert Catesby, and he's really the leader of the gunpowder plot. He's a gentleman from Warwickshire who we think was most people think was born in uh, 1573. His family suffered from a lot of fines for being Catholic. And his father, William Casby, Sir William Casby, had been imprisoned for his faith. They were related to numerous prominent Catholic families in the Midlands. And, you know, it's from this core group that he could recruit people into the circle to complete this plot. They really were hoping when James, so he's the sixth of Scotland, the first of England, came to the throne in 1603 that conditions for Catholic would be better. But, you know, it's this weird situation. He's a new king. He He's Catholic, but he wants to like keep the country at a level playing field. So he's not going to rock the boat too much. As well as the peace uh, signing of a peace treaty between England and Spain in 1604 really meant that English Catholics could not get any more help from the Spanish. And they're like, well, how do we fix this shit? And we have, so we have um, a gentleman we brought up earlier, Oswald Tezeman, who went to school with Guy, who praised Guy. And, you know, he said he like, he's really sound in his face. He has technical expertise, expertise, because remember, he's been a soldier, and he's a strong moral character. So he pretty much has the plotters bringing Guy in. So he's like, how Guy went from just being a soldier in Europe, plucked out, brought back to England to become part of this plot. Um, so they were like, hey, Guy, remember I said he went to Spain twice. They sent him back um, in undercover diplomacy, so he's a spy, um, to Spain to see if, if something did happen. Would the Spanish support it? I know there's a treaty, but I'm sure you know treaties are only good if both sides uphold them. And uh, Very true. If the Spanish were willing to, you know, break that, would they support them? And... We don't really know what came out of that. A lot of the information we get is from uh, Thomas Winter, who was close with Catsby. He really is the one who, after he's arrested, spills his guts, <laughs> basically, yeah. and is how we know how the plot developed. So he snitched. He snitched real hard because they had a couple people and he just, yeah, he broke down. I don't, I can't remember what he was tortured on, but... It probably wasn't pleasant or clean. He pretty much confirms that the whole group um, was willing to go on with or without Spanish support. So they kind of hinted, they're like, Spain, you might want to support us. But uh, as well as, so like I said, his schoolmate vouched for him. Some English Catholic emigres who vouched for his reliability. His main reason was his expertise using explosives. So <laughs> he's our bomb maker, which you don't think of in this period bomb makers being that big of a deal but remember we have gunpowder we don't have dynamite yet but we have cannonballs and all that so there's ways to make things go boom quickly i think people who can make bombs are pretty rare or at least especially now i mean our explosive 
uh, we call them EOD. I can't remember the name. I'm the I'm the worst of remembering what the acronyms actually stand for. But our explosive guys and gals, I mean, they're hard to come by. I don't think that has changed. Not a whole lot of people out there want to do that job. I think it's also controlling the level of explosion and making it work where it's not just, you know, anybody can make something go boom. But if you can make it go boom in a certain way, in a controlled way, the way you want it to, that's a talent. Cooker. And now I'm on a watch list. <laughs> but okay. When the. Okay. So we're going to be reconstructing the plot based off the confessions of two surviving ringleaders. So we have Guy and Thomas Winter. Winter's confession most likely was written for publication. Well, it's his own account, you know, written by him, but it, it's substantially true. But like, you can see where someone's like exaggerating. Anyone who's read enough of these and the consensus, if the consensus is that it's exaggerated by historians, it's most likely exaggerated. You read enough of these accounts kind of things and you're like throwing a little flourish, just copying and pasting. I see it. <laughs> While Fox's confession showed that he was, he knew, mo- he knew like a, most of the secrets winter was indeed the true like top level so he guy would be like a second level conspirator winter is like that inner circle they're all sitting at the round table with the bread strings and the timelines and both confer that the mastermind mastermind is robert catsby so winter and fox actually had a lot in common they traveled to spain on similar missions to gauge the spanish involvement and they met in ostend which is right across the english channel in early 1604 which pretty much is when the last time they had a chance to establish whether or not they're going to get practical support so if they do this will the spanish supply them with money troop extra supplies things you need again they meet hugh owens the intelligencer uh on england at the court in brussels sir william stanley and they both push fox towards winter they meet again fox and winter meet again at dunkirk yes that dunkirk and uh they confer that quote does somewhat in england if the peace with spain helped us or not and that is end quote that is the actual text and i am doing my best england is spelled with an (laughs) i in case you're wondering so the two cross the channel together i'm assuming it's like a rom-com but maybe ocean's 11 kind of deal where they're yeah traveling uh they call in catsby at his london lodgings in april 1604 and this is where winter goes yeah the spanish aren't going to support us and we just have to get catsby to agree that there's only one way forward so this means there's no spanish army um the chance of putting a catholic monarch on the throne is effectively gone so they're gonna put together a plan that they can do on their own and achieve their dreams i mean they're dreaming big yeah they got no Spanish army to back them up. They got nothing backing them up but their dreams and scattered friends. Passion and willpower. And a lot of gunpowder. Um, so Catsby goes, he's like, okay, let's destroy Parliament. And he only, with gunpowder, he only tells Winter and John Wright. But, you know, he meets with another friend, the Earl of Northumberland's cousin and the estate officer, Thomas Percy. I'm going to guess it's the same one who Anne Bo- like, relative of the one Anne Boleyn really liked. Um, you know, Percy visits Catsby in May and is so mad against the inactivity of this, like, the right-thinking Catholics. And so at that point, he's like, okay, let's get Fox and Percy in on this. They have to take an oath of secrecy. And you know, oaths 
are legitimate shit. It's uh, like a pinky promise, but worse mm. if you break it. Pinky promises are big in my house. Yeah. So on May 24th, Percy, using his personal goodwill of John Dudley Carlton and John Hipsley, so they're fellow officers of Northumberland's household, they take it upon themselves to lease a small house adjacent to the Lord's Chamber from a gentleman named Henry Fairs of Bedsley, Clinton, who in turn had rented the property from John Wynard, keeper of the old palace of Westminster. So it's basically they rent a small house next to the Lord's Chamber in London. So right by what, like, uh, Parliament. So plan, initial plan, I'm assuming it's drawn in crayon. Don't ask me why. I always have assumed this was drawn in crayon. Or like charcoal, it's just a burnt piece of thing. They're like, okay, we're going to take a, we're going to do a mine from the cellars underneath the Palace of Westminster through the foundations of Parliament. Fox, quote, because his face was most unknown, end quote, who would take the name John Johnson. Yes, that's the one they went with. Um, took charge of the building, pretending to be Percy's servant. So basically, it literally is Ocean's Eleven, but if they didn't have as good of a plan they're going to dig under like use the cellar of this house dig under the palace of westminster dig under the house of lords so they could set up a bunch of gunpowder and how long is this digging gonna take like are they like we can get this done in like a couple days or they're like it's gonna take us a year to do this and nobody's gonna notice us digging so it's the end of may and the plot doesn't happen until november so um it's Mm. gonna take a minute and nobody's going to notice some digging. I mean, if you're if you know where parliament is on the river, it's like it's by the river so like there could be ways to take it out. It just depends if people notice you taking large amounts of earth out. So, we also have Catsby's house in Lambeth, which is um on the south bank of the Thames, and this is where they're going to store all the gunpowder and mining paraphernalia because they could just take it across the river over to Westminster at night. So they're like, we'll just cross it. Keep crossing it. Keep crossing it. At this point, they employ a six-man Robert Keyes to look over the Lambeth end of the operation to just to stay in this house, watch gunpowder, I'm assuming while drinking wine or ale and making sure everything's going well. Well, there's a severe outbreak of the plague that prompted... Typical. Yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> right in the middle of your plan to like dig under parliament here comes the plague how rude of the plague how don't they know we're planning shit so the plotters um basically disperse into the countryside until february 1605 because they ain't getting that shit and one at the end of michaelmas law term they meet again in london so we see them breaking at this point in this period, Scottish commissioners had negotiated a proposed union between England and Scotland, which uh, took over, you know, Percy's uh, co- conveniently located lo- lodgings for their deliberations. So they're having these important meetings at their meeting place, not for them, <laughs> but to unite the two countries. But they did begin digging just before Christmas. So they've started already. By Christmas Eve, they had actually tunneled up to the wall of Parliament, so a couple weeks. But again, there was news of another delay, and so they're like, well, fuck it. We'll wait. So they wait until early February to stop digging. By this point, they had actually rode the gunpowder over across the river and concealed it in the house. You have to remember, this is old school gunpowder, so if it gets wet, you have to wait for it to dry out. You bit fucked. (laughs) 
I'm sure you know what gunpowder doesn't act well yeah it's not it's not good for at least the person who wants to shoot it yeah exactly so the reason why they put everything they're like okay we'll consolidate everything into percy's house so all like if something's gonna if they're gonna get discovered it's gonna be one house not several they spend another fortnight aka 14 days to hack their way through solid foundations and this is like old school stone solid fucking foundation um they're going too slowly because again hacking through stone so they were like you know what let's get three new people so we get christopher <laughs> let's Wright. just keep bringing people in and just saying hey yeah we're just building this thing underneath this uh parliament we're a fan not, of tunnels yeah not suspect whatsoever ignore the barrels that say uh explosive <laughs> we just like tunnels we're making a maze it's an underground maze guys help us with it you can it's play the new rage you we can play uh candle tag <laughs> i'm gonna go with its candle tag i was gonna say laser tag but they don't have lasers or like guns like that um so yeah they pull up christopher wright who also went to school with fox and is john's brother robert winter who's thomas's brother and john grant now they get a bit lucky they're tunneling and they hear a rush of sound over their head they freak the fuck out because they're like what do we do but because remember, Fox is the least known face out of all of these guys. Because it's a lot of like upper gentry, like well-known wealthy people. So they're like, Fox. and then they're just like, I'm just a, this regular guy, this regular dude. I'm just this soldier dude. I'm gonna go check out Parliament. I'm just a Joe, no bigs. <laughs> uh, so that's when they discovered that the tenant of the ground floor vault below the Lord's chamber, so the House of Lords, who was a coal merchant named Ellen Bright, was moving out. So they're like, say what now? Like, that's prime real estate. That's prime real estate for some gunpowder. And who has some gunpowder? Say what? <laughs> so Percy's like, I'm going to tap that. And he works at securing the lease from Wynard. And the conspiracy theaters are like, fuck mining. This is work. We are gentlemen. And they're like, we're just going to sneak all the powder into the vault. And that's easier. So all they have to do is wait for a session of the House of Lords. Uh, you know, because they had been digging for so long, they didn't really have a plan on what they were going to do, when. Because, you know, they had to dig this tunnel and it took a while. And they had a other an additional plan that they were going to kidnap the heir. Um, but that's not a guarantee because Prince Harry could be blown up with his father. And, you know, because Percy has Northumber Northumberland's patronage, which he, Northumberland's a big player. They've been big players in British politics for centuries. He undertook the plan to abduct James' second son, Prince Charles, the Duke of York, hastening away from court and like, you know, trying to get him away so they could have at least an heir to pop him in. Um, and be like, you're Catholic now. We're all Catholic. Congratulations. <laughs> His colleagues are like, uh, you know, it, we're going to have to get him all the way into the Midlands where there's more Catholic. So let's go for Princess Elizabeth, who's residing with John Lord Harrington, four miles from Coventry. To this end, they need to get an armed force of mounted Catholic gentry and, you know, Midland squires to gather. And Catsby is like, let's hunt. That's a great way to get armed people together. Let's go shoot things. Yeah. So they were like, we're going to go to Ashby St. Ledger's on the 5th of November. And, you know, you have to think about, okay, she's a woman. We can't have a woman rule alone. 
especially a young girl. Of course not. Yeah. So we need a a man of great birth and political stature who could do it, who could do it, you know. They really never set upon anyone for that. Uh basically they procrastinated that decision. They're like, "We'll see who supports us." And how we can do this. He, Catsby, because he's like the highest ranking, he was like, we'll make sure our friends uh, are dissuaded from attending the opening of Parliament. And, you know, it, whether or not he planned to do it, it's really hard to tell. Like some people, um, Robert Keyes said, uh, uh, maybe not. He seemed like to see want everyone blown up. So they spent the summer away from London in the cut countryside in guy's case he went overseas he was in flanders from easter to august keep basically trying not to get caught because they're all like just waiting for parliament to open i have to think that's got to be the most difficult thing everything's set up everything's kind of fallen into place you're just waiting yeah it's a waiting game for months (laughs) so while he's in brussels he meets up with Hugh Owens and the plan was to have Owens speak for them in the courts of continental Europe after the after the fact. So he's their representative after this happens. Meanwhile, back in England, there's pretty pressing problem. Catsby is the only one who's been born the financial burden of this year plus plot. So basically they he he's like, guys, I'm getting fucking broke here. Yeah, like I'm running out of the money. I'm going to need to ask somebody for some more money. Can we wrap this up? What do you think they did? Mm, they went and asked somebody for some money. They brought more people in. They brought more people. Did those people have money? Yes. They brought in wealthy supporters um, who can foot the bill. So we have Ambrose Rookwood, Sir Everard, Everard Digby, and Francis Tresham. I don't even, we're 10 plus people now. There's so many and people. Everybody's supposed to be keeping this a secret. They did the blood oath. They sacrificed a child. I don't know, but they, they did their best. Yeah. No one was like particularly excited. They just knew through. They're like, say what now? And you want me to give money. So you have a, a paper trail to my ass. Yeah. Ooh. Uh, Digby and Rookwood were persuaded about the like, they're like, this is necessary, guys. It's pretty necessary. Tresham was really really not happy about it and he was like catsby i will give you so much money if you don't do this call this off (laughs) like i'm done let's move on i think he didn't even want to do it it was just like it'd be like your friend telling you hey we're doing this i need i need you to support me financially to help me do this you're now involved and he's just trying to do the best with a shitty hand (laughs) so Catsby's like, yeah, sure, 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 sure. He's like, hey, not, no, I'm still do fucking do this. So Fox and Winter brought fresh gunpowder into the vault um, because they were afraid that, you know, the existing stock was damp, which is not the best thing for gunpowder. Nope. It it goes boom in a more un unplanned <laughs> way. Okay, yeah, uncontrolled, unplanned, don't know what's going to happen kind of way. Yeah. So October 3rd, Parliament's delayed. For a month. New date. November 5th. The 5th of November. So, you know, we see Winter attending the ceremony at Lord Montagale's entourage. Like, he knows that Salisbury and other leading members are at the council. By the end of October, all the main plotters are meeting in London. At the 26th, we see Catsby and Fox returning to White Webbs in Enfield Chase. And this is really the home of uh, the Catholic and Falk. And from here, they heard the news that 
Prince Henry would not become accompanying his father to Parliament. So their first choice is not doing that because the king, whoever is the monarch, has to open Parliament. So we see Catsby's goal of recapturing him coming back up, but there's, again, no plan. On the 27th, Winter learns uh, from someone in the peer's household that Montague received a warning against attending the opening of Parliament. And Montague was like, yeah, I'm taking this to court. Winter panics because he's like oh fuck someone someone told he goes to white webs basically is trying to convince catsby that you know this shit's up yeah gots to go yeah catsby is like no we're we're gonna we're gonna keep going he sends out again guy because remember his face is not known nobody knows who this dude is he goes and checks the cellar nothing's disturbed november 1st which is a friday winter and catsby meet an agitated Trisham and they basically go you fucked us over didn't you you snitched you snitched (laughs) and he's like no I didn't switch I didn't snitch I didn't snitch um you know we see Winter still inclined to like back out but Catsby's like we're gonna do this we're gonna give it every chance to succeed their last chance to basically not do this was November 3rd, when they had a meeting between Winter, Catsby, and Thomas Percy. Percy um, and Catsby clearly needed to, like, confer, because I feel like Catsby probably could have said, like, shut this down. Um, He went to Science House to eat with Northumberland on the 4th, and he basically went to feel out the situation. Is Northumberland concerned? Is, like, is there a hint in court and he comes back he goes no we're all good there's no seems to be no threat so guy goes to a station in the vault with a slow match and a watch and you know gonna the plans set yeah he's like nothing's working out our plan got torn to you know what so uh let's go let's do this no one it doesn't seem like anyone's really caught on so let's go yeah i mean you can have a perfect plan or you can have a done plan and he went for the done plan <laughs> exactly so the Privy Council pretty much realized that something was going on, but they were like, the letter was a little, like, didn't really give them enough, but they didn't want to alarm the conspirators because they're like, if something is going to happen, we're not going to go ring a bell and be like, something's going to happen. So we have the afternoon of the 4th, the Earl of Suffolk, who is the Lord Chamberlain, had the arrangements for the new session in hand, made a tour of inspection accompanied by others five months ago uh they looked in the lord's chambers and then descended into the ground level cellars which run the length of the building they kind of tended to notice a large pile of firewood covering the gunpowder and asked you know fox who's there is john johnson still stupidest name so dumb they're like hey what's up with all this fuel and you know he fox was like it belongs to my master thomas percy probably not the best name to give but uh suffolk recorded that the servant was a tall and desperate fellow and but the party was pretty much satisfied with the answer well but they returned to court and montagel goes oh percy had rented out a property in westminster you know he's a catholic and this brings up king james fears who was like yeah no we're doing a secondary deep search just imagine if the president was going now somewhere and they're like yeah we're doing that level of alert search where we're going because they basically said oh we're looking for stuff and hangings that aren't in the wardrobe that was excuse they gave so they had Sir Thomas Kevitt, keeper of the Palace of Westminster, do the search. Um, This is where, like, the story varies based on who's telling it. They go about midnight. Kevitt leaves the party into the cellar they met. 
Fox again fully clothed in his boots emerging from the room. They're like, okay, weird that he's dressed like this. And they haul away the brushwood in the wood and they uncovered 36 barrels. It's about a ton of gunpowder underneath the Lord's chamber. Wow. It's a lot of gunpowder. That's so much gunpowder. That's where all the money went. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's smart. They, they were like, okay, let's go at night. Because there has to, like, there's no reason for someone to be there. It's, like, kind of like a storage situation, a shop situation. If you're there at midnight, like, you're not up to any good. So they arrest him, take him away. And this is really where we see Guy's fortitude and strength. The examiners who go after him wrote, I love this, source I found said, grudgingly of his fortitude, his Roman resolution. So... He's tough as nails. He's not giving up shit. He did not implicate any of his colleagues apart from Percy, whose crimes were like he had already brought up steam. He admits to recently of tra- traveling to Flanders. And when they're like, why did you go? Why did you go? Why did you go? He was like, I wanted to see the country and pass away the time. I'm like, damn, this guy's got like ice in his blood. He's a G. Mm-hmm. Um, he when they could get him to speak, he's like, I don't like the Scottish because they're they're also Protestants. Um, they're mostly Presbyterian. There are still Catholics there, but there's whole issues with that. And it became clear that he had talked to the Spanish crown in 1603. He basically would be like, I would have blown up James and all of like the lords, everyone in there back across to Scotland. Like I have no remorse. I would have done it. He basically was taking all the blame. Um, he pretty much was silent except for muttering defiantly, quote, you would have me discover my fr- my friends, end quote. So he's keeping silent to protect everyone else. He holds on to his real name for two days. And this was only when he was taken to interrogators, getting the last bit of his con- the content of his pockets, and they found a letter addressed to him. There, it seems like all his efforts to defend the other plotters, conspirators, comes to naught. The Midland Rising uh, by... The key conspirators faces mass desertion. There was a brief skirmish at Holbeach House in Stafford where Catsby, Percy, and the brothers, the Wright brothers, perished. So that's four conspirators already down. At like 100? I think we're at 20 or something. And there's too many. <laughs> Winter is uh, taken prisoner on the 9th, and he reaches London on the 9th. Uh, we see really, the, so they're the only two main ringleaders left and really i think winter just kind of was like yep no not gonna i'm gonna say anything to save my life so he'll write it down fox was like you caught me in this i'm not gonna give you more than what you got yeah he does give testimony on the 7th 8th and 9th um for his early trial of treason it was clear that he had been tortured um when there was like the threat of revolt in the shires so really those early days right after he'd been captured and seemed like there was going to be an upright and they're like we're gonna torture shit out of you because we need information um however james did recommend quote the gentler tortures end quote first and you know if he doesn't talk get more abusive so that's nice but once the basically seems like the plot's gone they're like yeah nope we're good both the remaining uh conspirators are in the tower until january 1606 so they're in there about a month and a half and you know they're like let's get tried in parliament to like speed up this so they're tried on january 27th on charges of high trees and they have eight of them everybody so yeah what we lost for so we're like at 12 so many everybody but sir ed everlet everard digby plead not plead guilty 
he pleads not guilty and um people are like you know someone were like oh no i didn't do this like it's not part of it the trial lasted a day and you could pay high prices to watch it one uh, mp complained that he had paid 10 shillings for standing room <laughs> so that's high cost mm-hmm. <laughs> they could have used that money during when they were trying to get funds i know they if only they would have known. So uh, others had been, mainly because others had been let into the same area for smaller sums. So he's pissed he got scalped. Yeah. Uh, it's rumored that both the king and queen attended in private. The attorney general, Sir Edward Coke, launched into, you know, his, uh, I guess he's like the prosecution in a bombastic style against the prisoners with the Earl of Northampton giving a tedious speech defending the king and his charges made by Digby um, that James had gone back on the promises of toleration. Pretty much no one doubted that they were all going to be guilty. Four men were condemned to die on the 30th of January in St. Paul's churchyard. The following day, Winter, Ambrose Rookwood, Robert Keyes and Fox uh, received the same fate at the old palace yard, Westminster. His body was quartered in fulfillment of his senses and most likely was put on gates entering London because that's what they do. Super classy, cheap decor. So why do we know about this? On November 5th, 1605, Londoners were encouraged to celebrate the king's escape from assassination by lighting bonfires provided that, quote, this testimony of joy be carefully done without any damage or disorder. And it was an act of parliament designating each November 5th as a day of Thanksgiving for a joy of deliverance. And that was pretty much continued until 1859 as one of the 13. So we were a little off um, conspirators. He is really the main one associated with the plot. There are conspiracies that he was the fall guy, which makes kind of sense. But um, and he took it like, you know, like he wasn't giving anybody up. I think he's just like. You know, people who are hardened soldiers or kind of spies, they just, they're like, I'm not, I'm here for this. This is my cause. I'm not giving you anything. But yeah, yeah they're here for it. What do you think of Guy Fox now? That- I think he's kind of foxy, <laughs> for one. I, I like a man that's not a snitch. Uh, I think I take took some guts. I don't think they were smartest. I think they should have just blown it up in the first place. Mm-hmm. I don't know why they were like, let's dig some... <laughs> tunnels yeah i think the whole tunnel thing was they needed a way to get under there but the fact that they stumbled across the tenant leaving is genius because you know it stopped them from it saved them so much time the problem like the struggle is parliament kept getting like delayed or like put on break and yeah sounds like nobody was doing any work per usual oh yeah so we'll be back next week with natasha's story and It'll be a more true crimey story. This was history and true crime because there was assassination plot. But you want to tell everyone where they can find your podcast and what's it what it is about. All right. So you can find Bird Nation on anywhere you can find podcasts. We're on uh, Spreaker. We're on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. We are on um, pretty much anything you can think of. Uh, the podcast is actually a storytelling podcast where I interview uh, women that I've met in my life or women I've come across on social media. And I like to make sure that we talk about their story, whatever they're struggling with and, um, you know, how they got through it. And I think we've had some really impactful episodes and it's just, it's fun. We have laughs. Sometimes we have tears, um, but it has been 
amazing for me to interview these women. And I was like, just tired of not seeing more uplifting stories and women leaning on each other. So I have a strong female tribe. And that is what Brodette Nation is to me. It's this tribe of women that are amazing. They're badasses and they own their story. So if you want to hear women owning their story, give Brodette Nation a listen. Okay. And we'll be back next week when Natasha takes on her first true crime story. Bye. Hey, it's Natasha Turney from the Brodette Nation podcast, where I interview everyday women who own their stories. I've talked to military veterans, entrepreneurs, stay-at-home moms, fitness gurus, single ladies, and many more. My goal is to talk to as many different women as I can on issues that are important to their story and hopefully yours too. Listen on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, and Stitcher. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Brodette Nation. For more information, visit my website, www.brodettenation.com. Hey y'all, Jen and Lindsay here from Corpus Delicti Podcast, here to tell you to check out our show. If true crime is your thing, it's ours too, with a touch of lightheartedness and a dash of Southern charm. We cover compelling cases and crack them open for you. Serial killers, hitmen, historical hallmarks, we've got it all and bring you new episodes every Tuesday morning. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and most other podcast apps. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter too. That's C-O-R-P-U-S-D-E. L-I-C-T-I. See you Tuesday. Cults of Domesticity, we're available on all podcatchers. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to help spread the word or just force other people to listen to it. Our Facebook and Twitter are at Domestic Podcasts and our Instagram is at the Cult of Domesticity. We also have podcast merch at Threadless. Uh, as well, if you want to support us financially or show some appreciation, we have a PayPal tip jar and a Patreon, which has some pretty great perks. Any topic suggestions, feel free to email us at domesticpodcast at gmail.com. Remember to stay domestic and cult-free. <laughs>